You're listening to a message from Ogden Church, a gospel-centered ministry for all people. We hope during the next few minutes you gain a better understanding of God's love expressed in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, welcome. We are glad that you're here with us this morning. We've been in a series looking at the book of Ephesians. It's been awesome to see how God is encouraging his church and communicating his truth to them then and and us now. And what we see in this book and in these passages is that God has truth for us to understand and live by and think about. Last week we talked about how there's value assigned to husbands and wives in roles given by God. And he gives dignity to those that maybe in that society didn't have as much value assigned to them. Last week we saw that with wives. In that culture, wives weren't assigned much value, but in God's kingdom they are. And what we see this week and in this Chapter, chapter 6, is that God is the one who assigns divine dignity. We saw it with women last week as wives, and this week we're going to see it with children. We're going to see dignity assigned to parents and slaves. And so it's through the context of divine dignity that we think about how that applies to children, parents, and slaves, but it all comes from God. One of the things that's interesting about our culture is Christianity can get a bad rap. There are people who have this idea about what Christians have done. And they all they think of are the bad things, the negative aspects of the history of the church or Christianity, and they say, well, hey, have you heard about the Crusades? That was bad. And they think of all of the negative implications of what people of faith or who have faith have done. But this fails to recognize the larger, broader cultural impact of Christianity, how the message of Christ and the person of Christ changed the trajectory of our world. And This is highlighted in an article written by Alvin Schmidt at Regent University. Talks about the impact of Christianity in history. This is what he writes. This impact of Christianity can be seen in many places, but none more evident than the value we put on human life. Our modern day value of human life was rooted in the teachings of Christ and the actions of of early Christians in rescuing newborn babies among the trash heaps of Rome. Whether through infanticide, gladiatorial games, glorification of suicide, or human sacrifice, there was almost a global attitude that human life was cheap before Christianity. Everyone thought this. The most beneficial institutions of our society find their roots in the influence of Jesus Christ. Early Christians founded the first hospitals, orphanages, and feeding programs combating the pervading view of that time that it would be better 
to just let the sick, the poor, and the orphans die. Monastic libraries provided the inspiration for the first universities in the 12th and 13th centuries. It's really important that we understand and recognize that many of the things that we love about compassion and care and caring for those who are struggling, it all finds its root in the message of Christ and divine dignity assigned to people as a result of them being created in the image of God. A lot of people love sort of casting stones at Christianity without realizing that all of human dignity that we like to celebrate and stick up for those who are in need and lift up those who are lower in our culture. Our society loves to talk about this but doesn't have a foundation on which to stand to actually do it. Christians and the message of Christ is that foundation that we see in God's word, giving dignity to all people, all walks of life. And so what we see is that dignity that's assigned by God and, and how it applies to children first, then parents, and then slaves or bondservant is how that phrase is translated. Verses 1 through 3, he directly, directly references children. In this culture, in ancient Rome, children were an inconvenience. They were not held up highly, and they were discarded if they were going to be a problem. This is what he writes, Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on earth. I know some Christian friends of mine, this is the first memory verse they have for their children. I don't know if you've tried that. Children, obey your parents for this is right in the Lord. What we see is that the family is crucially important for the thriving of culture. And as we break down individual rights and perspectives and we say, well, look, I, I'm not sure if I'm on board with what you want. This is a call for children to say, look, I first submit to God. And as my parents are instructing me under the umbrella of God's law, I will submit myself to them. This is hard for us to do. And whether you're in whatever phase of life right now, we need to think about what it looks like for us to submit ourselves to God and how that plays itself out in our lives. But then we're told a, a promise. It comes with a promise so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on earth. And some of this is very practical. If you have young children, you know that it seems like their goal is to hurt themselves for the first like eight years of their lives. Like they're just on a mission to do damage to themselves. The other day, one of my children was running through a parking lot where people were leaving. I said, stop, no 
listening to what I had to say, just bolting through a parking lot. Not great. Actually, in situations like that, very practically, listening to your parents can extend your physical life. This is a good idea. Then I reflect on myself as a 16-year-old so in love with my girlfriend, and I remember thinking, you know what? That's it. I love her so much. Let's just elope. Let's just go to Mexico or wherever this is legal, and let's get married. And my mom said, no. (laughs) Don't do that. And my life, I am sure, is going to be longer as a result of not having made that decision. You see, but the problem is we want to be the one who calls the shots. We selfishly want to be in charge. So the idea to say, well, my parents are asking me to do this. It doesn't make sense to me. It's us willing to recognize God. Look, you understand things I don't understand. I will submit to you. And as a child, we say to our parents, you also, maybe, understand some things that I don't understand, so I will submit to you. In the same way, we think about the principle of submitting to God, we think about submitting to our parents. Again, if our parents ask us to do something that is against Christ, that is not something we can submit to. With the heart of humility, we say, look, I I have one true master. He's the one I will listen to. But we, we struggle with this idea of submitting. Very, very young, we were walking from our daughter's softball game, and there was this little five-year-old girl that was really pitching a fit. She was upset, screaming that, I want to go to Grandma's house. I want to go to Grandma's house. Screaming it. And the mom was, like, trying to just sort of, like, Make her way to the car, and I walked by, and I said, I was like, hey, don't give in now. Now's not the time to give in. You're going to be reinforcing some negative behavior. And so this little girl just thought, I know what I want, and it must happen. And I thought to myself, it's very easy for me to think, hey, I can see that that's a problem. But struggle when I look at my own inability to submit to God's will for my life. You see, the principle of submission is bound up with faith. To say, God, I, I know that you know more than I do. And I will lower my will before yours. When do you struggle with the prideful judgment towards God to say, well, I need it this way. This must happen. You see, it's that individual self-perspective worship that keeps us in a place of wrestling and fighting submission. It's a call for children to say, I will honor my mother and father. This is something that is scriptural and written. And then he goes to talking about the dignity that's, that's given to children as they're addressed and encouraged to respect and honor their parents, obey them. He goes into verse 4, talking to, I think, both parents, but specifically referencing fathers here, probably for a reason. Verse 4, this is what he writes. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up 
in the training and instruction of the Lord. I think what happens often in our lives, specifically in our families, is we, it's so easy for us to accentuate the negative, to focus on all of the mistakes that people have made. To say, hey, you know what? You really could have done this better. You need to make a different decision there. And we think of ourselves as, as guides for our kids. So we want to tell them, hey, you know, that was a misstep. You got to correct that. But we sometimes struggle with reinforcing and encouraging the positive things that we see in our children. I remember one time I came home in high school and I had tried hard that particular year. And I brought home a report card that had all A's on it and an A minus. The only thing my father said to me is, son, how can we make that A minus an A? Interesting. Part of me appreciates that he wants to sow seeds of like, you can always improve, you can always work. That's not necessarily a bad message to send, but we must consider ways that we can encourage gifts and lift up our children. Not constantly be looking for things to correct. We can find ourselves in a place of pointing out all of the hard things that they forget that God has given them gifts. And they have a special role to play for him. There's a a painter by the name of Benjamin West who told this story about himself recognizing that painting was a gift that he had. Benjamin West was just trying to be a good babysitter for his sister Sally. While his mother was out, Benjamin found some bottles of colored ink and proceeded to paint Sally's portrait. But by the time Mrs. West returned, ink blots stained the table, the chairs, and the floor. Moms, you're hearing that, right? You know what what this feels like. Benjamin's mother surveyed the mess without a word until she saw the picture. Picking it up, she exclaimed, Why, it's Sally. And she bent down and she kissed her son. In 1763, when he was 25 years old, Benjamin West was selected as history painter to England's King George III. He became one of the most celebrated artists of his day. Commenting on his start as an artist, he said, My mother's kiss made me a painter. Her encouragement did far more than any rebuke could have ever done. You see, our identities get so wrapped up in our kids that when they cross us or they make a decision that embarrasses us, we have the tendency to jump on and latch on and crush them. You see, but the dignity that God gives them and he gives us is the ability to say, my identity is secure in you, God. So I am not crushed by what my children choose to or not to do. This is a difficult thing, but it is possible. For us, when was the last time you just encouraged someone around you? This is true for Parents, not parents, do we have a tendency to just 
say 90% of things that we see wrong? Or do we look for things that we can encourage and build up? As we point our children to the love of Christ, do we experience it and let it overflow in our families? So he then goes from addressing human dignity for for children, the implications of that for parents, and then he talks directly to slaves, which is also interpreted as bond servants in different translations. Now, what we recognize that in our culture, this is an extremely difficult topic for us to talk about. Our country has a particularly bad taste in our mouths when we think about history and slavery as it was expressed in the United States. You see, these aren't necessarily referencing the same thing, but it's important for us to see that God is applying his kingdom to all people, no matter what stage of life they are in, no matter how wealthy or poor, how gifted or not, God says, you have dignity. For him to not address bond servants or slaves in this culture would have been to miss millions of people. Roman citizens, many of them didn't even work. All of the work was done by people who were bond servants or slaves. And so Paul says, look, these people have dignity. I will address them and they can be a part of God's kingdom. Slavery is wrong. But Paul says that they also have a master who's in heaven, just like us. Everyone does. And this is what he says as he assigns dignity to people in this class, in this culture. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, serve wholeheartedly as you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether slave or free. God is the one you're accountable to. He gives you dignity, and whatever your stage Serve them to gain their favor so that you're shining the light of Christ in your situation. You see, this isn't... Some people read this text and think like, hey, is this the Bible endorsing slavery? It's not. The Bible applies to everyone individually. And so what we need to realize about the gospel is that Jesus came to save souls. This was the goal of what Jesus shed his blood for. And when we think that, look, we need to change 
this system or this culture or society, if we're yelling about those things, but we're not thinking about individual heart change and submission and humility and repentance for sin in our own hearts, we will never change something larger when we're focused on the wrong thing. As hearts are changed, as people repent, then the system changes when we recognize our own brokenness. You see, for me, I coach my kids in youth sports, and my goal as I do that is I realize that none of these kids are going to be professional athletes. None of them are probably going to go pro in whatever sport they're doing. For me, the goal is character development. As they struggle through issues, as they have a hard time, the point is they can overcome adversity and step into life with a better understanding of what it means to struggle but yet move forward. Well, my son's game, his first game, they had, they had an umpire that was probably about six months older than the kids on the team. There was one of them, and, and he was struggling a little bit. And there was one particular kid on the team that said, man, this is messed up. We got to do something about this. And I sort of sarcastically said to the kid, like, what do you want me to do? Go out there and beat him up? He's 12. He's like, I'm not going to go. He's like, well, you can't, but maybe I could. <laughs> he was so obsessed with the frustration of that particular moment that he was completely missing the character development that could be taking place inside of him. He wasn't looking at himself, he was looking outside of himself, and the problem was outside. The issue with that is the more we're looking out and trying to blame others for poor choices, they shouldn't do those things, the less we look inside and are willing to repent of our own struggles, our own issues. And it is through individual heart change in people, as we come to God and say, God, my life is yours, that some of these atrocities in history have been corrected. You can see even somebody like William Wilberforce, who stood up against the, the slave trade in England, it was because his heart was changed by the gospel of Christ. And he says, this is wrong. All people have dignity. And he steps into a place to stand in the gap. You see, but we can't do that unless our hearts are changed. I was, I was on my way home from the baseball game with my son, and I just turned to him and said, hey, you know, if you, I just want you to know, if you ever act like some of those kids were acting, this could be super embarrassing for me. Please don't ever do that. And he turned and he looked at me and he said, he's like, Dad, see, when you don't have God in your heart, baseball's all you have. You see, it's true for every single person. In this room, if you don't understand the hope that we have in the gospel, you become obsessed with whatever outcome you want to see in this world. It can be your job, it can be your marriage, your family, it doesn't matter. But there's real eternal hope offered to everyone through 
the sacrifice of Jesus. He says, do all these things because you know that the Lord will reward each of you whatever good they do, whether slave or free. He says, look, it is about eternity. It's about what God has to offer us. Dignity for all people. And then he wraps up this section in verse 9 and and says, And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Treat your bondservants in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And there is no favoritism with him. You see, there's one person who's really in charge. I don't care how much money, authority, influence, power you have. You're still going to answer to God one day. You know, I I worked at at a big church in Chicago. And I worked at a satellite campus of this church. I was very low on the totem pole. And so I uh, would once a week have to go to the main campus. And the senior pastor was a very intense dude. He was just scary to be around. And I remember I'd be sitting in the coffee shop cafe that was in the church. And he would walk by and everybody would be like, don't make eye contact. Don't look at him. He might fire you. And so... We're like, all right, everybody take it easy. But I'll tell you what, what that did do is everybody was working hard. Everybody was looking at everybody else saying, well, hey, you know what? Like, look, you might, you're not accountable to me totally, but you're going to be accountable to that guy. He's watching everything, and it sort of created this environment that, that people knew. Like, hey, there's, there's somebody who's in charge and affected the way we treated each other. You see, human dignity only works if there's an ultimate source that assigns dignity to people. It doesn't work any other way. I don't understand. It's not possible for people who aren't Christians to say human life has value or you need to respect that person or give this person their due. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't work. You have to have a source that gives that value. And even their desire for that points to the existence of God. The need, the want to say everybody matters. I got, I got a, a cool chance um, recently. I went down and we have some friends that, that come and, and use the facility for a little bit um, that have special needs. And I got to color a, a picture with this, this guy named Tom. And as I was preparing for this, I started to do research on how ancient cultures would treat people with special needs. They'd dispose of them. And I sat there with this guy who was telling me Dukes of Hazzard is his favorite show. And I saw dignity. And I saw value. That's because of Jesus. He flipped this world upside down. Before it was the strong, the powerful. Only people who could be in charge were the ones who made all the decisions, called all the shots. Life didn't have value. 
Jesus comes and says, let the little children come to me. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Children, obey your parents. Parents, don't crush your children. Even slaves, bondservants have a place in the kingdom of God. No matter what your position or what culture says about you, dignity is had by all because we are all created in the image of God. We can only love others as well as we have received this love from Christ. Where does your value come from? Are you able to look at other people and show them love and care no matter where they come from or what they do because they are not the one you're trying to get dignity from? You say, I have a master who is above all of this. And to him I'm accountable. Because you know what's not possible for us as Christians? We can't run around with the Robin Hood mentality where we say, I'm going to rob from the rich and give to the poor. Because you know what my master says is stealing, it's wrong. I can't just make that choice because I have accountability. You see, we can't live in this if-then mentality. Well, they did this horrible thing. My boss is a really bad person, and he's not looking, so I'm going to do something subversive. We have a master. We have a true Lord of our lives. And to him, we are accountable. And he sees it all. You see, dignity is, is given to people that otherwise would not have had it. How can we find our value and identity in Christ so that we can love and encourage other people because we have been loved? Extending grace when people don't deserve it because we received it when we didn't. Let's pray and then we'll close. God, thank you that you sent your son to this world to change everything. The one on whom history turns. And we see dignity assigned to all. Let us long to have you change and shape us as we submit to you and give dignity to others because you have given it to us. May our hearts long for your kingdom to come and your will be done. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message. Please join us on Sunday mornings at 9.30 or 11 a.m. If you'd like any more information about Ogden Church, just visit our website at ogdenchurch.org or Facebook.